Would you tell Jason and his team thanks one more time, please? Thank you. Um, before I lead us in a prayer, I, I do want to thank a number of folks. Um, I don't want this to be about uh, people in the sense that we're just congratulating one another because that's not my intent, but this could not have happened without Wayne and Patty Wolf, without uh, uh, Bert and Sharon Sanders, without um, Paul and Michelle Reeves, um, uh, Jason and Heather Germain, uh, Cindy, my wife, who was actually a late adopter to this idea um, <laughs> for reasons she can uh, share with you. Um, but uh, truly, it's been their uh, encouragement and patience with me over the months. Um, and um, there's long stories behind all that. This is really put together very quickly. Uh, Wayne is not kidding when we said this was not some big baked plan we had for a long time. This was a very quick decision. And um, we both kind of looked at each other one morning over coffee and he said, let's start something. And I said, well, you and I could probably start some trouble. <laughs> so uh, here we're starting something and we'll see what, what it turns into. Um, I shared with many people, this is the first time, I'm 61 now, I'm not afraid to talk about how old I am, and I've shared with many people, this is the first time in my life, I'm kind of awkwardly embarrassed to say this, that I've ever done anything purely by faith. Because, you know, you get married, you think you got a plan, you get a job, you go to school, graduate school, seminary, I mean, you know, you take a job, you go, you know, you, you kind of follow a track, and all of a sudden at 60, I didn't know what I was going to do. And at 61, we're, we're doing something. So the cool part about it is if it works, we give all the credit to God. And if it doesn't work, we get to take all the blame. <laughs> and in my view, that's a no-lose scenario. So it, it's a wonderful thing. We, we give God credit or we take the blame. And um, I think you're the kind of people who want to grow, who want to study, who want to learn. Um, we're not here to, to compete or compare. That's not the point. It's just different. Uh, I do also want to say thank you. When you came in, you may, may have noticed um, we're not that organized, and uh, Cindy and I have been attending Conduit, where uh, Darren Tyler is the pastor, his wife Shannon, and uh, we spent some time with them, become friends, and they were so excited for us when we told them before we told others that we were going to do this. Um, and Shannon and uh, some of their staff and elders showed up before the service with all these knickknacks and flowers and mints and little welcome signs and gather things. So, I mean, that's just a community of that little church conduit, not, not such a little church. And uh, it's very sweet of them to do that. And some of you know that church, and I wanted to publicly express uh, my gratitude to them. Let me uh, lead you in prayer, and I'm going to ask you to kind of settle in for a moment. Wayne mentioned um, the four parts of Acts chapter four, uh, 2, verses 42 and following, and one of those is a continual devotion to prayer. And um, prayer can be wooden, it can be uh, repetitive, it can be boring, and I want to challenge and encourage you, as I do myself, to grow in prayer. So let me, I'm going to guide you into prayer, and just close your eyes for a couple of minutes, and uh, let's pray together. First, I want to ask you to confess any sin between you and God that right now is sitting on your heart or head that you know you need to ask forgiveness for. Thank him that as you confess that, he completely forgives you. Admit to him that you're tempted again and again 
by some set of sins and ask him for help to resist. Ask him if you're willing to help you not to sin because you know you can get forgiveness later. Pray for your purity, your holiness, and that your mind would be renewed. Thank him that he loves you, that he forgives you again and again and again, that he's not mad at you. Pray about your life as a steward of what he's given you and how you use what he's granted. Would you thank him for one or two specific things that come to mind that are blessings that you surely didn't deserve, that I didn't deserve? Would you thank him for one or two things that he's done that pop into your mind that you need to express gratitude Think of one attribute of God, whether holy or just or merciful or patient or loving or some other, one attribute, and praise him because he's just or because he's holy. Take a moment to praise him for one attribute. Will you ask him, Uh, to help you grow, no matter how mature we may think we are, that we want to continue to grow into our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, beyond we want to be maturing men and women of Christ and ask him to reframe your view of what needs to change. Would you pray for someone you know who's struggling, maybe in their health, their marriage, relationships, and work? Someone who comes to mind who's really hurting. You pray for a friend of yours who does not yet know Christ. Maybe they're close, maybe they're investigating, but pray that they will come to know that they know that they know who this Jesus is. Would you pray for this church? As Wayne and Jason have mentioned, it's starting, it's beginning. We are not sure what to do in so many areas, but we know some things to do. So pray for us who are leading, who are steering, who are planning how this church might make an impact for Christ's name.
And finally, would you ask Christ to help you change in one very specific area between maybe now and the next few months, by the end of the year, that one area you struggle with, you continue to uh, deal with, fight, temptation, sin. Lord, would you help me in this one area? And would you sincerely, earnestly ask him, Father, I need your help. And the only way change would be possible is if you did it in my life. Would you ask him for that? Father, we do love you because you love first. We are not good, better, or best, and therefore got your attention, but you and your sovereign kindness chose us for reasons we will never understand while we live this earth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your uh, truth that's contained in the scripture, that it is sufficient for a life of faith. We thank you for your spirit who indwells a believer, who impresses upon us, who teaches us, who convicts us, who encourages us, who walks alongside us to implement this Christian life. And for men and women who love Christ, your word, your spirit, and your people, uh, to be the kind of men and women you want us to be. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As we started planning this day, the one thing that I give credit to Wayne, because we were talking about, well, it's, it's almost a cliche. If you start a church, you must start at the book of Ephesians. And you have to teach through Ephesians. Or you start in Acts chapter 2. And uh, not that that's bad or wrong. Uh, Wayne threw an idea out and it made great sense to me. He says, Michael, let's, let's unpack the Lord's table at some depth. And I thought that's a brilliant idea and I'd love to do that. Um, so we are uh, going to culminate this service with participating in the Lord's table. And most of us um, enjoy fine food. I love fine food. I don't know about you. Uh, I enjoy going out to really nice restaurants as much as I do going over to someone's home and having a beautiful meal or uh, cooking a meal at our home. There's something, the older I get, the more I enjoy actually getting in there with Cindy and cooking in the kitchen and you know grilling stuff and trying new recipes. And some people are great foodies and we like to learn from each other. It's fun to be around food and friends. And one of my dear friends says, uh, the best food and the best friends makes for the best experience. The best food, the best friends, the best experience. I'm like, that, that's, agree? I mean, if, if you're with a family that you don't like and you got to have Thanksgiving, what a bummer. But if you love uh, the people, you know, someone gave us a towel years ago, said uh, uh, if your family or the friends you choose, uh, and so we kind of like that idea. So you choose a family and have them over. But there's something about not being pressured, not being under stress. And if it doesn't turn out, it's okay. If that dessert wasn't so good, no big deal. Um, someone doesn't like what you cook. It, it's just the time around the table, around participating, breaking bread. Um, I've been to Nova Siberia and eaten hard bread you could play catch with. Greasy cheese and slimy room temperature sausage that they They'd call it charcuterie over here and charge you $20 for it. Over there, it's gross. <laughs> and, um, and I've eaten this stuff with 350 Russian pastors in Siberia, and it was one of the finest meals I've ever had. I've been in Nigeria and had pounded yam and suye and fish soup, and as the guest, yes, I got the head in my bowl, and I was expected to eat that head of fish soup and, uh, and break bread with these men and women in Nigeria, and it was a fine meal. I've been in a missionary's home, Cindy and I, many years ago. He and his wife spent all their life in Vietnam 
before the war, after the war, they were able to go back translating the scriptures. And we went to their home in Duncanville, Texas, a very modest portion of tuna and steamed carrots and a little bit of rice. And I'll never forget David Blood saying, we know this isn't much food, but when we live in Vietnam, this is the way we eat. And we don't want to get accustomed to eating the way we do in the West. So while we're here for these six months, this is how we eat. We hope you don't mind. And then he said, I think you'll find it very filling. And you know, it was a wonderful meal because of that calibration. Um, when we break the Lord's bread and share in the cup, we are literally having the finest meal with the finest people on the planet. It's the best meal with the best people for the best reason. In one sense, this must be the most important meal we ever participate in. So what better way to launch a church than to remember why this was important in the Old Testament and Christ's perspective of it and why we want to do it this morning as a, as a family of God. Well, I want you to think a little bit about how the Jew understood Passover. Uh, you know the story of Exodus. You know the story of the plagues probably pretty well. And those 10 plagues came upon Egypt as a punishment for Pharaoh's treatment of the Jewish people. Uh, basically, this is what's called a polemic. It's a war. Who's God? Is Pharaoh God or is Yahweh God? That's the whole storyline. Is Pharaoh God because he made himself out to be a God? And there's some 8,000 Egyptian idols that are in that, to use the word pantheon of Greek language, that comprise this Egyptian idolatry system, which is why they had so much trouble with idols when they were in Egypt. So the war is, is Pharaoh God or is Yahweh Elohim, who called Moses out of to, to lead his people, is his God God? So the, the, the polemic between these two, just to give you a sample of it, the plague of the frogs, remember? All the frogs come across the land, they're stench, and they're, they're begging Moses, tell God to relent, tell God to relent. Why a frog? Just kind of a cool story. Well, the Egyptians worshiped a frog God. Each one of the plagues paralleled a God. When the, the, when the Nile is turned to blood, why? Because the Egyptians viewed the Nile as the blood that fed the land. You think it's blood? I'll turn it into real blood. Who's God, Pharaoh or Yahweh Elohim? The culmination is the darkness plague. Why is the darkness plague such a heavy thing? Because God, the god Ra or Re was the superior god of Pharaoh. You think that's God? I'll turn the lights off and you'll see who's God. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. And the death of the firstborn, this argument between Pharaoh and Moses back and forth, back and forth is, you think you're God? And he defies them and God throws another plague at him. The final plague is, you think you're God? I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Why was that important? Because the firstborn son of Pharaoh is what? The next God. Because he made himself to be a God. So the story at the highest level is, God is saying to Egypt, you think Pharaoh's God? You're going to try to kill my son, my people Israel? I'm going to kill your son. So it's like the, the God war. Now, Pharaoh isn't a God. He's a little G God. He's making himself out to be a God. But he's pretending to be this God and have this power over his people. The final battle is going to be, I'll kill your firstborn son. You're already seeing the implications. So during the Passover... Uh, Moses commands them to take a goat or a lamb that's one year old, that's unblemished. They could take a, it didn't matter, out of the herd of goat or lamb. 
They kept it for two weeks. He also tells them in Exodus chapter 12, which is pretty cool, and I have to confess, I only saw this this week. Chapter 12, verse 1 of Exodus, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months to you. So this is basically their January 1. It's Nisan, but this is how you're going to count your calendar from now on, the beginning months of the year to you. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel. That word congregation, as the first time it appears in your Bible. I'd never noticed that before. Speak to your congregation, the Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, they're to each take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. And then it's described on what the prescription for that is. They're to kill the lamb at twilight. They're to bleed it. They're to gut it. There's a certain way they all knew how to prepare it. They're to roast it with fire. They're to have unleavened bread, bitter herbs. They're to gird their loins, which in our language, roll up your sleeves and get ready to go. Keep your staff ready. You're traveling. Got your go bag. That's how we talk it today. You got a quick meal, fast food, and you're going to go. And you're going to eat all that lamb or goat. And if you can't finish it, burn it with fire. I want nothing left. No, no leaven, unleavened bread, nothing. It's all got to be burned. You're going to be out of here. This is the Passover. The Passover is a play on words. It's Peshka, Peshka. The angel of wrath is going to come in and fly over. And if you killed that lamb or goat and put blood on your doorpost and lintel, when the angel of wrath flies over, your firstborn is spared. For our language, your firstborn son or daughter, your firstborn dog or cat, no loss with cats, your firstborn horse, whatever it was. Any firstborn in that house is going to die unless you've got blood on the doorpost and lintel. Now, what's this doing to Pharaoh's people? All their firstborn children are going to die. And as I understand that, even the adult, if I was the firstborn adult and I was the father of those children, I'm going to die. All the firstborn are going to pass away who didn't have the blood over the doorpost and lintel. So the Passover then becomes this horrific event for the Egyptians. The Israelites are terrified. It's a night of danger. It's a night of intrigue. They're going through the sacrifice. And oh, by the way, it's the only sacrifice in the Bible where the worshiper kills the animal. And it's in Egypt, not in the land of Israel. It's a fascinating memorial. The rest of the chapter, he explains to them, you're going to do this as a perpetual memorial because I don't want you to forget I don't want you to stop remembering what I've done for you to bring you thus far. Because we're going to get out of Egypt after all this slavery, 430 years to be precise. We're going to get you out of Egypt. And the big lesson, of course, for the Jew was redemption from slavery, consecration for worship. We've got to get you out of this enslaved environment and then consecrate you for worship. We've got to get you out of the idolatry out of the literal slavery, out of the temptations of Egypt. we got to get you across the river, literally and metaphorically. we got to take you to the new land, literally and metaphorically. we got to get you out of Egypt and get Egypt out of you. We've got to redeem you, consecrate you for worship, set you apart. Of course, we know the story. They dropped the ball real fast and ended up wandering for a long time. And that strips away more of who they were and helps them become who they're supposed to be. 
Well, this memorial was to go on forever. And depending on Israel's situation in the land, whether they were in compliance with God's law, on and off through their history, they would, they would remember the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And it was a celebration. If you've been to a Seder, and I highly recommend you go to a Seder, there's a lot of Jewish Christians here in the area. And you, you get invited, go, go, go. Don't even think twice. Go to a Seder. Because you'll learn so much about their perspective growing up with what these things mean in those different uh, uh, Jewish sects, how they were taught about the Passover. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus is going to be the one who's going to fulfill this. Now, it was to be a perpetual memorial so they don't forget Every time you go to Washington, D.C., have you all done the D.C. thing and gone to the Washington Monument and then to the Arlington Cemetery? You must do this. It's free. Just go up there. It's all free. You go to the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, and you read what's written on those walls. And if tears don't come to your eyes, something's wrong with you. And they spent all this money in architecture building this thing, the World War II, the Vietnam Wall. It's a memorial. Why? Because we'll forget. I've often wanted to do a video production, go spend a week up there and film all these memorials and give a little snippet and story of it and end the last one over on uh, Gordon's Calvary, uh, Calvary in Israel, Gordon's tomb, and talk about this is the real memorial, an empty hole, not the one men built. Well, Jesus is going to explain the Last Supper to them. Now, let's think a little bit like a Jew. If you're one of the disciples, uh, you knew this story pretty well because they were very compliant about teaching their children. You look at Easter, Christmas, and Thanksgiving in the Western culture, I hope you're teaching what those things mean to your kids and grandkids, not just that it's a time for uh, gifts and, and overeating and whatnot, not being in school, but it's a time of thanksgiving for our country, for the blessings we have. It's a time of celebrating the resurrection of Christ. It's a time of celebrating Christ's birth. These are memorials in a way. You need to remember this. So Christ is going to, at a time of danger, commemorate the Last Supper. In Luke 22, 15, he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. I've earnestly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. How do you say something like that? I can't wait to do this right before I'm killed. I know I'm going to die tonight, tomorrow. I can't wait to celebrate this Passover with you. I don't think the disciples understood what was going on. I really don't. I don't think we would had we been there either. I'm not being critical of them. The word Passover here in Luke 22, 15, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, is the word in Greek, Pasco, taken from Pesach in the Hebrew. In other words, it's a loan word they brought into to Greek. And so the concept was very familiar to the Jewish ear. They knew what Passover was about. I do think they were afraid. Enough is happening right now in these last days of Christ. I think they're terrified. He's been giving them hints. I'm not going to be here much longer. I've got to go. And he's going to celebrate this last meal with them. Maybe they're thinking about the Exodus. Maybe they're remembering what God did. Maybe they're putting it together. You know, they went through a horrible evening and they went, got out of slavery, but then they got out of Pharaoh's bondage. I don't know if they put that together where they're being redeemed from slavery and consecrated for worship. As the New Testament is written, we get, a, we get more and more information on the Lord's Supper. Wayne referred to Acts chapter 2, 42, 47. They're continually devoting themselves to four things, and one of them is the Lord's Supper. 
Uh, churches have debated this for centuries. Do you have the Lord's Supper every Sunday, uh, first of the month, five times a year, 12 times a year? Uh, and we get more help as we read in the New Testament as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. So it seems we're to do it frequently. Why? Because we forget. The danger of doing it too often, it becomes boring. It's yawns. If you grew up in a tradition like I did, where we had communion every single Sunday, it was just a time to get out of the seat and walk up there and how many times I'll go sit back down. I mean, you know, it, was, it was a ritual. Others, maybe in a brethren background, it was very meaningful to you week by week. And we're talking about that as our strength committee. Do we do this every week? I don't know, but I'd be open to that idea. I, there's a richness and a texture to it, but I don't want to hurry through it or take it lightly. So where's that balance to remember why, but not become, okay, we're going to do this every Sunday. Like anything in life, right? We get bored with routine. The continual devotion to the Lord's Supper, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, the breaking of bread technically is what the text says. Those are the four foundation stones, Wayne mentioned, of a church. Don't have to have a big, fancy marketing plan. Don't have to have, those things are great and helpful, no doubt about it. Strategy is important, no doubt about it. But it seems like teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Where do we lack? Prayer. Howard Hendricks, my mentor, professor with the Lord now, often said, the one area Satan has no hold over is our prayer life, and it's the one area we never utilize. He said he would rather you study your Bible than pray. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I like it anyway. Because a lot of us can study our Bible, but it's hard to pray. Here's a guy that taught for 66 years, and he says it's hard to pray. That's why I think it's important when Luke wrote Acts, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. It takes some discipline. It takes some energy. Well, again, churches and frequency and how we do these things, but these, in a sense, are four foundational mission pieces of a church. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship. It's an act of commemoration. It's an act of remembering. Listen to A.H. Strong. The Passover was a festival in its nature. Gloom and sacrifices are foreign to the spirit of the Lord's Supper. The wine is a symbol of death. But of that death, we live. It reminds us that he drank the cup of suffering in order that we might drink the wine of joy. The bread is broken to sustain our physical life. So Christ's body was broken by thorns and nails and a spear that nourishes our spiritual life. The symbolism, of course, the cup is the shed blood of Christ. The bread is the broken body of Christ. It takes both the broken body and the shed blood to prove he's dead. The reason the spear and the side and blood and water coming out are so important, some of you in the medical realm know about pulmonary issues and edema and all this kind of thing. And when you're dead... If, you put, if blood and water come out, the lungs then have filled with fluid and he's dead. We'd say there's no pulse, so no activity, but in antiquity, he's really dead. So the efficacy of the shed blood is that he truly died. His body was broken and beaten on that cross, but he, he died. And apart from that, there's no efficacy. The symbols of the unleavened bread recall the manna in the wilderness. They would walk out every morning, except for the Shabbat on Sabbath, and they find this this frost tastes like coriander and honey. If you know some of the comedian routines, have talked about, you know, you get sick of manna, manna burgers, manna cotti, how many ways can you cook manna, right? And then on the one day of the week, they weren't supposed to gather it. It was going to gather twice as much the day before because it won't be there tomorrow. And how many of them violated it? 
Or they kept too much and it turned to worms. Moses beating his head. What I tell you? Six days collected on the sixth day twice as much. How hard can this be? Yeah, you know. <laughs> they couldn't get over it. You know, there's, there was manna in the Ark of the Covenant that never rotted. It was a miracle. Uh, King James called it like hoarfrost on the ground. You walk in a, in a Tennessee field or a Texas field when there's just a little crisp uh, a fog and a freeze, and it's this little fine frozen layer. That's how I envision it. And it was there every day. They had three things in the wilderness. They had a cloud, they had manna, and they had water. That's all they had. And they lacked water a lot of times because God would take them to the edge. What a paradigm of spiritual dependence. You need three things. You need water, manna, and him. Boom. And sometimes he takes all our stuff away until we trust, I got water, I got manna, and I got a presence over me. I, I kind of would like a cloud over my head and tell me where to go and when to go. That'd be, uh, wouldn't we like that? It's time to move. You know the story about the rabbis in the tents, right? The, the word in Hebrew for tent is ochel, ochel. And every time the cloud moved, the rabbis would go, ochel, we got to move again. <laughs> They'd exhaust the land. And then, ochel, we got to pack up the tents and go. And off they went to their place. And the cloud covered them by day. If you've been out in the West Texas or California or Arizona and a cloud comes over you, it's a magical relief. If you've got water in the desert, it's a magical relief. And that cloud sustained heat by night. Go figure. So every day there was something on the ground, something over them, and water to keep them alive. Water, manna, and God kept them alive. Well, the symbolism is the same today. Preparation is important. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul stresses examining ourselves. And this has been a passage that's been mistaught, I believe, many, many times about whether you're worthy or unworthy to take the Lord's Supper. And I came across a quote again from Strong that helped me immensely. In response to this unworthy manner, we're not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This is not to be understood as the unworthiness of a person to partake but in the manner of partaking. That's helpful to me because we're all unworthy. I mean, you may think you're worthy, good for you. I am unworthy. The Christian, therefore, should not be deterred from participating in the supper by feeling personal unworthiness so long as he trusts Christ and aims to obey him. That makes sense. Which one of us could break bread and dip in the cup and say, I'm worthy of this? The text says, in an unworthy manner. It doesn't say an unworthy person, and this helps me. I hope it helps you. So that's why it's a fitting time to confess sin. Okay, Lord, I know this sin is in front of me. Um, I do it all the time. I struggle with it. I wish I didn't. Will you help me? He'll forgive you. That's the beautiful thing. That's why I don't understand why people resist Christ. He lived, he died, he was buried, came back from the dead. He offers you complete forgiveness of sin and eternal life for him, with him, and you pay nothing. It's a get out of jail permanently for free card. He died in your place on your behalf instead of you. It's the best business transaction in the world. You do nothing but come by faith. That's all you do is you come by faith. You believe in him to do for you what you can never do for yourself. 
And it, it will never cease to amaze me why people will resist. So we're all unworthy. We participate what we call an open table, meaning if you're a believer in Christ, we welcome you to come. There's been times in Cindy's in my life when we've attended churches and we've chosen not to participate. I can't even tell you precisely why or why not we would do that. All I'm telling you is we just come in the right manner. I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness, and he forgives you. And listen, there's a marvelous reality to being forgiven and knowing you're forgiven. When the guilt and shame in the world just does its job on us all the time. Eating the Lord's Supper is an act of fellowship. If my friend is right, best life is having the best food with the best friends. If you're a believer in Christ, this is a small reminder of that meal. The last celebration before Jesus' crucifixion was the Lord's Supper. The first celebration after his resurrection is the Lord's Supper. It's always a bookend. I'm going to get you out of slavery in Egypt by this horrible memorial that you're going to remember forever. Pharaoh said, I'm God. God said, no, I'm God. They had an argument about it, quote, unquote. God says, you tried to kill my son, Israel. I'm going to kill your son. God kills his son. Fast forward, Jesus comes on the scene to fulfill the Lord's Supper, to fulfill Passover. And instead, what he says is, God and Pharaoh had an argument. Because there is no other God but God alone. And now Jesus says, in order for you to have dinner with me, you got to kill me. And then I'll come back. And then we'll have real fellowship. You think you're God? I'll kill your son. You threaten to kill my son? I'll kill your son. Here's my son. You kill him. And now we can have a relationship. I'll never get over it. He was the only sacrifice that was without blemish. A goat or a lamb was just a partial sign to remind us that. Can you imagine being a child, an 8, 10, 12-year-old child, seeing your father bring in a lamb that you'd had for two weeks in your home, essentially, and cut that animal's neck and bleed that lamb and butcher that lamb and cook it and eat it? Not everybody in the family would be happy about that. Can you imagine the trauma of running away at night? in the Passover, to escape the terrorists? Can you imagine when they stood on the waters of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them? By the way, 1.2 million is a conservative number of Jews coming out of Egypt. Conservative number. These little movies where they have a couple hundred people. 1.2 million cross that Red Sea. And then they come to Mara, the bitter water. And then it starts all over again. And the Disciples, with the master, the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of Lords, who's going to die for them, is putting this all together. And just like you and me, we wouldn't have gotten it all. But as the New Testament develops, boy, do they understand it, and Paul understands it. Jesus, the bread of life, delivers men from hunger and thirst. Men take this bread by coming to him and believing in him. But this believing and this coming are not by works alone. The power lies in the will of man acting. They do not exist apart from the power and will of God. We are completely dependent upon him. Luke twenty two nineteen. when he'd taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, this is the cup which is poured out for you. This is the new covenant 
in my blood. Derek Kidner writes, the verbs take and eat, very simple act that happened in the garden. Remember, she took and she ate and gave it to him and he ate also. The verbs take and eat. However, that required a very costly remedy for the Lord himself would taste death before those verbs, take and eat, provided salvation. And that's what we'll commemorate this morning. We have four areas, two in the back and two up here. We've got a a cup uh, and we've got some bread. It's already broken and you can just take the bread and dip it in the cup. Come as a family if you would like and uh, gather around and just take bread, dip it in the cup. Get in little groups of twos and threes as a family if you'd like. Take a moment, pray. Uh, Jason and the band will lead in some quiet worship while we do that. Commemorate. Remember. Do this in remembrance of me. So come as your leisure. Two stations in the back, two up here in the front. Let's talk about Joseph's second dream. If you have a Bible... Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. If not, it will be on the screen. This is the second dream in and out of Egypt. Let's jump into it. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Again, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Um, it was, it's a fun study. I got derailed this week. How many angels are involved with escapes and jailbreaks? So when you end up in jail and an angel shows up, that means God's got your back. That's what you need to look forward to. Um, last Sunday, we, we noted that we don't have the name of this angel. The other birth narratives that Mary is visited by Gabriel. And Cindy pointed out to me uh, Tuesday this week, she she was reading through all the narratives, and she said, do you realize that Gabriel also appeared to Zacharias? And I had forgotten that. So you have these birth announcements that are all tied into not only John the Baptist coming, but the, the Savior coming. So perhaps it's Gabriel, just FYI, we don't know for sure. The warning is very straightforward. It's very clear. It doesn't take a lot of exegesis to analyze. They're going to go to Egypt. But we do need to think about why in and out of Egypt. The phrase is going to, Herod is going to, is an urgent, this is like a fire drill. You know, you're not supposed to yell fire in a building. I think it's a felony to yell, yell fire. This is like yelling fire to Joseph and Mary. He is going to You've got to move. And the word get up literally is the same exact thing you say if you've got kids and it's a school morning, get up. And it's the same tone you said, get up. Or maybe your spouse, uh, one of you likes to sleep late. Time to get up. We have to get going. It's exactly the same occurrence. Three times in the birth narrative, you're going to see this phrase, get up. Now, Herod, we need to go back a little bit in history to understand Herod. Herod the Great is a megalomaniac. Uh, When you go to Israel, we'll show you the Herodium, which is a man-made mountain. You're not going to believe it. You're going to go, there's no way this guy made. He made a mountain. The the Herodian temple complex, it was like Herod said, that complex is too small. I'm going to build a bigger one. When you go to the top of Metsuda, also known as Masada, where was probably David's stronghold. That's what the word means, stronghold. In fact, the NASB, the Bible I like to read out of, always translates Metsuda, stronghold, in the Old Testament. And he goes up there for a fortress. Herod overbuilt that. 
Herod was arguably second to China and perhaps Egypt, the, the biggest global builder of history. He's a megalomaniac. Uh, one of my dear friends who is a tour leader in Israel says he's Danny DeVito with a short man complex. And he was a small statured man. Now the Herodian dynasty is very complicated, very complicated. I actually have a little uh, map of the Herods and the crowns, Archelaus, in different roles because there are so many different Herods. This particular Herod is Herod the Great and that we're reading about. The fear has come to him. It provoked paranoia on Herod's part. But why? Herod's half Jew. So we go back in history. The word that Herod heard was the king of the Jews, a lineage of David was born. Okay, big deal. Well, you got to go do homework because Herod is a descendant of Esau. So you're going back to Jacob and Esau. The birthright was traded for a bowl of porridge. Esau becomes a persona non grata. Jacob becomes the father of all that's going to follow in Hebrew and Jewish history. Esau's not a delightful guy. So Herod is half Jew. His lineage is tied to Esau, not Jacob. This is a political threat. If you're a megalomaniac who's paranoid and you hear that the king of the Jews is born of the Davidic line, this is like, uh, and we talk about red and blue waves, uh, this is like, you know, a royal wave that's going to destroy his empire. So he's going to take a overstated action. In verse 14 of the passage we read, Joseph does this under the cover of darkness. He travels about 70-some miles uh, after he gets the message from the angel. Why in and out of Egypt? Well, you know all this already, but just as a review, it was prophetic. If you look down in your Bible to Matthew 2.15, I don't have it on the screen, he quotes Hosea 11.1. He remained there until the death of Herod. Again, that's Herod the Great. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then we do have Hosea 11.1, 1, so you can look at it. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So that's the Holy Spirit moving in Matthew's pen to recall and recount Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. We discussed last week Yeshua, Yahweh, uh, Hosea are all basically the same word. It means Yahweh saves. Interestingly, that the Spirit moves Matthew to call on Hosea. The book is called Yahweh Saves to remind them, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is written, you remember your history. Uh, I, I, I always remember the alphabet. I comes before J, A, B, C, I, J. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Israel is larger. It's also known as Ephraim. This time it was the largest tribe. So Hosea is writing a letter. That it's almost tongue-in-cheek. The letter is called Yahweh Saves. And I'm going to tell you, out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son. What would the Ephraimite Israelite think when they heard, out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son? Out of slavery. Out of Egyptian captivity. So we've got this tension as you're reading the story. What's going on? Because that's not why Joseph is going to Egypt. He's going to Egypt to escape persecution. He's going to Egypt to save the child. So one of the reasons we unpack some of this, Genesis 46.3, 
Jacob is told, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. A metaphor, Joseph will bury you. So out of Matthew's citation, they're going to think this is out of slavery. The New Testament reader is going to be going, why is he quoting a prophecy about out of slavery? When Joseph is told, go to Egypt. So we start tying these things together and the connections together. Again, the command is very simple. Get up and go because the the child's life is in danger. A very small detail, but for you BSF, Precept, uh, um, Community Bible Study folks, you'll notice the child is the prominent noun in the sentence. Joseph is, oh, by the way, take the child and his mother because the child is what's important, not really Joseph. Joseph is the delivery man. The child is the package. Joseph, you get up and take the child is prominent in the sentence. And they're going to go in and out of Egypt. So we're escaping danger to go into Egypt, and then we've got to get out of Egypt to escape slavery. As an aside, you know the phrase slaughter of the innocents? You ever heard that? Any of you art history majors? Any of you study art when you were... No art history majors in this room. I'm, I'm surprised. There are, I mean, when you look at the Rembrandts, when you look at the, the Dutch masters, there are certain painting periods that were very biblical in nature. And there are some of these paintings that are iconic in the slaughter of the innocents and the flight out of Egypt or some of these iconic paintings. And they're interesting to see how these artists interpreted or overinterpreted the passage. But a lot of people would associate the slaughter of the innocents with a whole array of artistic expressions of this experience. And I won't go way down the weeds, but essentially in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, we're going to read that Herod's rage, he's so incensed, he destroys all children, all boys, two years and under. That's known as the slaughter of the innocents. And then the reference is that Rachel weeping for her children, which goes back to a passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Herod is the last He's the big Herod. He dies weeks after this. So he administrates his soldiers to go murder children. He's a megalomaniac. He's powerful. He has the capacity. And he dispatches these men to go kill all these children two years and younger. And they are then fled, Joseph, the child, and Mary, and they're safe. A few weeks later, then Archelaus will take his place. And then Archelaus and Herod Antipas are the next two. So you've got Herod the Great. There's four or five subtexts. But then Archelaus is a very short term as the Herod. And then Herod, uh, uh, Herod Antipas is the one who's going to be over Jesus primarily over his life. Antipas is going to be the one who's going to send him back to Pilate. He's going to, Jesus is going to call him that fox. So that's the Herod. So there's, the Herods are a complex system. Uh, think of the Kennedy dynasty on steroids globally. That's what you have with the Herods. It's a very complex backdrop. I'm belaboring this because you and I don't always understand this little Christmas story of what's going on in the political drama of the day. God is moving heaven and earth, we'd say, to protect his son. Why is that so important and why is Egypt playing the role? Remember when Joseph dies in the Old Testament, we have this cryptic phrase, a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. What happened? They forgot their history. They forgot their history. And he treats the Israelites harshly, severely, brutally. 
and that sets up the whole Exodus story, right? That sets up the get, let's get them out of Egypt. So we've gone down to Egypt for certain reasons, for protection. Now it's time because Egypt has become abusive and is killing us and killing our children. So don't miss the connection. The second, third passage I want you to look at is Exodus chapter 4 with me. Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. Let me read them, or you can follow on the screen. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, sidebar on the word firstborn. There are certain religious groups that... um, Firstborn is a, is a very hot potato. It was Jesus the firstborn of all creations, as Paul writes in Colossians? And that, does that mean he was the first ever born? And, and scholars, scholars are boring people that get bored with things, so they dig these real deep holes in their area, and they're experts in their hole. And once in a while, they stick their head up and look around and go back in their hole. So the scholarship that's... that's, that's bubbled up over the decades on this word firstborn, it's, it's astronomical, the opinions. All it means is primacy. Some of you have a firstborn son, and some of you, that may have been very important that your firstborn be a boy. In some cultures, it was considered kind of a bad omen if you didn't have a son first, and you kept having children until you had a son. And whether you like it or not, in the Middle East, those women don't matter. Until you have a boy, then that's your firstborn son. Now, what the point of that is, it's primacy, it's position. In our, in our, in our culture, my, my sister is the firstborn. She's eight years older than me. And rightly so, uh, my father uh, told her as he was getting older and, and he was dying, he said, uh, uh, what's the, 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 the limerick? He says, your son's your son till he marries a wife, your daughter's your daughter all of your life. And he told her, you're the firstborn, you're going to take care of your mother. And I'm so glad she is. (laughs) Had it been the firstborn son, perhaps the firstborn son. And so Joanna is over the estate and managing her health care and so forth and so on because she's the firstborn. Is she more important? Is she better than? No, she just had primacy in the family system. She was the oldest. Olders tend to be more compliant. All the things we would talk about as Westerners. But when Jesus is referred to as my son and the firstborn of creation, he's not the first man ever born because he's eternally existed. And he was born, Galatians 4.4, at the proper time by a virgin under the law of Rome. So he enters time and space, but he also appears in the Old Testament. So it's a mind bender. It's stuff of science fiction. You can't figure it out. So was he the firstborn of all creation? in the sense that he has primacy and first rank. Now, let's tie it back to Pharaoh. Why is this important? Pharaoh thought he was a god. Pharaoh thought his firstborn son was a god. So when you look at the, the, the war, if you will, in literature we call it a polemic. And so in literature it's, you know, it's red versus blue. It's army versus navy. Go army, right? So whoever won, yes, army won, right? They trounced navy. It was terrible. Um, but it, so you have sides. In literature, it's called a polemic. Pharaoh has made himself out to be a god. He has millions of Jews that are basically indentured slaves to build his buildings and carry out his life. 
They're multiplying so many of them, it becomes a threat to the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. As you fast forward in the story and God brings the plagues upon him, what was the, what was the, what was the discussion between Moses, God and Moses and, Mo, and him sending Moses to Pharaoh? Let my people go. And most people miss the most important part of that phrase. Let my people go a three days journey into the wilderness that they may, what? That they may worship. Getting them out of Egypt wasn't simply a mass exodus. You know, exodus is one chapter of the book, which we all miss. It was getting them out of the trappings of slavery and indentured and idolatry under Egypt so they could worship Yahweh Elohim, the one true God. And then the wilderness wanderings were to strip them of all the idolatry and their dependence upon the pots of meat, the leeks and the onions that we left behind in Egypt. God is taking his son, Israel, out of indentured slavery that they kind of like and moving them into a wilderness experience that's a lot worse than where they were. And then he'll strip that out of them. Interestingly, uh, pious Jews to this day don't have a problem with idolatry. It, it sort of cured them. Orthodox Jews, nominal Jews, different story. But that's all for free. Let's go back to Pharaoh for a minute. Pharaoh is making himself out to be God. So the plagues are called a polemic. You think, I'll just give you two. You think a frog is a god? I'm going to send you frogs like you've never seen before. And they're going to die and be a stench. You think the sun is a god? I'm going to turn off the lights for three days and show you that I'm over the sun. Each of the plagues was a polemic against the gods of Egypt. What's the story? Who's God, Pharaoh and his son or Yahweh Elohim and his son? That's the big picture of the literature of the Exodus. That's the fight that's going on. So now we've got this little, this little birth narrative. Out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son, my firstborn. I'm going to call him out of there. The position and prominence is what's in effect. It is chilling, and if you've read it and know the story, the final plague is the Passover, what we call the Passover, which occurs during the darkness plague. And then we have the Passover, and um, they're going to kill the lamb. We're going to commemorate the Lord's table. They're going to kill the lamb. They're going to bleed it. They're going to put blood on the doorpost, on the lintel of the house with hyssop. They're going to eat a combination of bitter herbs, some vegetables, uh, the meat roasted from the goat or the, uh, the uh, sheep, roasted with fire. Uh, they're going to dispose of what they can't eat, unleavened bread because it's quick and because it also removes the sin aspect of yeast or leaven that's spread through the house. A lot, a lot of different stories going on there. But the whole picture of that was... Um, you're trying to kill my son, Israel, I'm going to kill your son. And the only safety for the Jew was, you better do what he says on this Passover thing. You better take that animal, you better kill it at twilight, at twilight, you better put the, you better do it right, gird up your loins and get out of Dodge when I tell you. And then all the firstborn of all Egypt die. What's just happened to Pharaoh? His God died. Yahweh Elohim killed who Pharaoh would argue was God. So the polemic that goes back to Israel and Egypt is the same today. Who's God? Under Rome with Herod, which would be an archetype of Pharaoh. 
Under Rome, where Herod trying to kill all the children, what did Pharaoh try to do? He told the midwives in chapter 1 of Exodus, when the Hebrew women have those boys, you kill them. And the midwives were, were, were crafty. Oh, the Hebrew women delivered too quickly. We can't get there in time. Because it was unconscionable to murder a child. Well, it happens under Herod. You see, history hadn't changed. We, we re read recently about this king who allegedly killed this reporter and, you know, you know all this stuff's going on. And um, people are so surprised that a king would order the death of somebody. Nothing has changed. We just don't know history. We're living under a world system that could be called Egypt or Rome run by pharaohs or Herods or sheiks or whatever you want to fill in a blank. But there is a sovereign Yahweh Elohim who's not mocked. Jesus is born to die. And I don't know, we, we sometimes look at Bible characters and think they're sort of like, you know, stone knives and bearskin rugs and, you know, they're sort of living in a cave dwelling type thing. I think Joseph and Mary in a, in a Bible quiz could beat all of us combined. Because pious Jews knew the word. Pious Jews memorized enormous amounts of oral tradition. And I think when Joseph is hearing these things and he sees these dreams, he's obeying God. Maybe not that moment when the angel told him to go to Egypt and later so when it's safe, I'll bring you out. Maybe not that moment, but I bet in very short order he connected the dots. Because this is just like when Israel went down to Egypt. Now, why did they go down in the first place? Do you remember? A famine. In Hebrew, there's no bread no grain. The reason they traversed down to Egypt was because there was no bread. They come out of Egypt, and remember Jacob, and the poor guy, he's lost Joseph. He thinks Joseph's dead, right? His beloved son. And they're dying, and he looks at his, you know, you almost see him sitting on the couch playing Game Boy, you know, his sons. Get up and go find some food, for goodness sakes. And they go to Egypt. And you know what, the story and they keep Simon, Simeon, Simon, Simeon, Simon, Simeon. They keep him as hostage, and then they had to go back, and then, of course, Jacob's bereaved. Oh, my God, what have you done to me? Well, they ran out of food again. Same song, second verse, go back. Get some more food or we're going to die. In and out of Egypt. In and out of Egypt. What's the town where Jesus is born called? Bethlehem. Bet means house. Lechem means grain or bread. The same story, whether it was Jacob, whether it was Joseph, the same story was you go down to Egypt when there's a famine in the land, which is a result of your sin, by the way. I'm going to make a provision for you, and I'm going to care for you. And when it gets to the tipping point, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. But you've got to believe me and trust me and follow me. And so we have this little prophecy out of Egypt, I will call my son. It's a double entendre. I'm going to send them down there to illustrate what happened to Egypt. I'm going to call them out of there to be your Savior. I'm going to send Israel down there because they're famine. They're going to end up in slavery to sin and bondage to Egypt. I'm going to strip them out of that. I'm going to, I'm going to consecrate them for worship by getting Egypt out of them and make them a new people. And it all culminates. We look back last week on what God did. God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted period. Now, let me apply that, and it's going to be uncomfortable for some of us. 
I do not think God's sovereign plan for your life or mine can be thwarted. Can we muck it up? Can we drag our heels? Do injustices happen? I would argue God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted for your life. Now, here's the, the next caveat, and Christy alluded to it very well, comment on it. You have to rest confidently in what he's done. And what are we all trying to do? We're all fixers. We're all fixers. We're all, let's get it done. Let's make better decisions. Wayne and I had a conversation a couple times in the last few weeks about you know, what we're trying to do at Stonebridge. And we're so excited. We're so humbled. We're so appreciative. We're so, it's so cool. And it's like, what are we doing next, Wayne? What are we doing next, Michael? We're making it up as we go. It feels, it feels parochial. And, and we kind of laugh and say, you know, if God doesn't do this, it doesn't matter. And that's the part that excites me. Because by faith, we're doing something. If he helps us and blesses us, we give him all the credit. As I said the first time we met, if it doesn't work, I'll take all the blame gladly. If it works, we give him the credit. If it doesn't, we'll take the blame. And to me, that's a no-lose scenario. Because we are hopefully being faithful. I don't think anything can thwart God's will for your life. It may not be the life you intended, the life you hoped for, the life you wanted. It may not be the life you were sold. That's called growing up. That's called being mature. That's called looking at your own stewardship of the resources God's given you. As we commemorate the elements, I want to remind you we have four stations. Take your time. Come up here. If you're with a family or a friend, grab the elements, go off a little bit. Uh, say a quiet prayer as a family to your, uh, by yourself or where you want. Take your time. We have, we have time. We have room for this. But I want you to think through Egypt and why Jesus is called out of Egypt. Abrams goes down there for a famine. Jacob moves his clan back and forth. Um, they go out because there's no bread. The Passover is established because of this. Three days in and out of Egypt. Three days is a metaphor we find all through our scripture. The child Jesus is going to go down to Egypt and come out of Egypt, and he's going to be from the house of bread. This is like, you can't miss this stuff. Hello, McFly. This is like the most basic theology, but we miss the story because we're too familiar with the obvious. This is a big picture. It's a long ball. The passage tells us the God-man Jesus Christ will be born to die on God's order, and nothing's going to stop that. Nothing's going to stop the remedy for sin. The application for you and me, do you and I live faithfully, knowing nothing can thwart his plan for your life, and it does not always work out the way we want, turn the page, let's grow up, will you live faithfully? Will you trust him for bread? Isn't it funny how it always comes down to bread? You got to eat. The two elements of life, liquid and solid, commemorate what we call the Lord's table.